Rosemary Turnigan, or Sean Bobby. No, not the wish for the downfall of the Western world, but the downfall itself arrives. A rosemary tourniquet wrapped around its forearm. Songbirds nesting in the winter of its sixth extinction's chest. Below, the riot crawls like a toddler out of its wage crib. And songbirds fly in cemetery arcs above the coup and its calligraphers. The downfall of the Western world stutters when it speaks of land reform and lithium. Mouthing vowels so distended, they turn cows to villanelles, hurl a gibbous moon at the money form. Before the downfall of the Western world, my mother welded her meals from scraps. Now she walks in IMs toward the kitchen sink, and the sun sets like an old bruise in the moment of all plentitude. To fix the price of bread, she says, set blaze to business schools. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, an angsty youth group teen writing you poetry <laughs> based off That's the Song great. of Songs. Oh, yikes. Uh, <laughs> I'm Dean Detloff, and uh, I am your uh, failed Christian poet turned evangelical CCM singer-songwriter. All right. Lord, I lift your name on high. <laughs> uh, this week on the show, we're talking with Dominic Knowles, who, among many other things, is an editor at Protean Magazine, which is a really neat lefty mag. They publish poetry, but also essays and other kinds of stuff, Uh, a really neat project of independent publishing in general. And Dominic is responsible for a lot of the poetry that gets in there. So we're really excited to talk to Dominic about um, their own thoughts on poetry. Uh, We talk about some academic work that they've done. Uh, We look at some poetry from a really wild Marxist in the 30s. Uh, This episode's got it all. (laughs) We get into more about what Protean's going on and what Dominic thinks about the poetic process and their own poems. And and, uh, there's just a lot happening, I feel, but all extremely good stuff. Yeah, totally. If you're playing the Magnificast home game, you can uh, go to Viewpoint Magazine. Uh, and read Dominic's essay, A Spectre in Every Street, George Oppen and the Poetics of Communism. It's a good essay. Man, uh, this is what I need to get into poetry. Uh, I need historical essays about it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my hook. That's the thing that's going to get me really excited about it. Yeah, that's right. We need uh, just the driest cartography <laughs> that one could offer in order to figure out where all these poems fit. That's what really speaks to my uh, my grad school crushed soul is uh, <laughs> just just historical writing. Oh, love it. <laughs> oh, man. How's this uh, for just a, a thought about poetry? What if instead of calling it um, poetics, we called it uh, poetics, kind of like mm. politics? Nice. Now, that is awfully close to poetry. What you've just done there, I think it's pretty close. I think it's closer to being a song because you do have to hear it. Huh. OK. Well, um, <laughs> I, th- I feel like we're really close to uh, going down a terrible rabbit hole that we do not need to go down there right now. So <laughs> instead of that, <laughs> let's go right over to our interview with Dominic. Hey, 
This week on the Magnificast, we have Dominic Knowles. Uh, they're a grad student. They study poetry. Uh, they write poetry. And uh, they write about also communism. And listen, we love it all. We love all of those things on this show. Um, so, uh, Dominic, I, I don't know. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, who are you? What do you do? What do you work on? Those kinds of things. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, I'm a fourth-year uh, PhD candidate um, at at Brandeis. Um, I study uh, like Cold War U.S. poetry um, and imperialism in Latin America and the relationship between poetry and democracy and the imperial impulse. Um, I'm a union steward um, and uh, yeah, I'm a communist. So that's pretty much all there is to my identity. (laughs) Great job. You've done it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, cool. I mean, we'll get into how all those moving parts kind of fit together, I guess, throughout the course of the conversation. Um, As you you know, I guess, from kind of following the podcast a little bit, the the idea behind our conversation and the arc so far has just been to explore how poetry operates as it relates to Christianity and the left uh, together. And it's kind of an interesting way into that conversation that we've never been able to explore. So we're glad to have you on. Um, we figured we might start talking a little bit about how some poets have worked out their politics through their poetry or intention with poetry generally. Um, so we read your article in Viewpoint uh, called A Spectre in Every Street, George Oppen and the Poetics of Communism. Um, I think that might be just kind of a nice way into the conversation. Uh, could you give us maybe a summary of what you're trying to do in that article and uh, what you're talking about, I guess, uh, for folks who haven't read it? Yeah, sure. So um, article is basically talking about Oppen. Um, he was one of the later modernist poets. Um, he first published uh, um, a book in 1934 called a discrete series. Um, and basically what, what kind of fascinated me about his whole, um, body of work is that at one point, um, uh, in like 1935, he, you know, had just finished his first book. Um, it got like a good review by Ezra Pound and everything. Um, and then he was like, poetry is fucking useless. Um, it doesn't do anything. I'm going to go join the communist party and, you know, give speeches at strikes and, uh, you know, try, try to organize, you know, um, and that moment of just being like, this has no use value anymore. Um, the things that I'm creating, um, are actually a detriment or an impediment to like making the world a better place. I thought that was such a fascinating moment. So I tried to like parse um, the relationship between that because he did start writing again um, in 1958 um, at the end of his exile in Mexico. Um, So uh, basically my thesis of that is that when you stop writing poetry to go do radical shit in the world, you actually don't stop writing poetry. You're actually realizing the poem um, in those moments. So there's no... There's there's a continuity between uh, when you put down your pen and stop writing, uh, and when you pick it up back, you know, again when you've uh, done your political work. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Um, it's also a little bit scandalous too uh, that you know you just stop writing, um, or or that you know that you, you you couldn't do both at the same time. I guess that, I think that's like a challenging idea. It's definitely an idea that runs kind of contrary to some of the poets we've been reading over the last few weeks, especially Ernesto Cardinal. 
um, mm-hmm. who, you know, he's, he's merging completely his poetic work with his larger political project as the minister of culture in Nicaragua. Um, you know, so, so um, I, I guess I was reading your essay and on the one hand, I have Ernesto Cardinal who's like practicing his politics through poetry and like teaching peasants and whoever, you know, to write. And then on the other hand, there's George Oppen, um, who is kind of like an interesting foil to that way of thinking. So, you know, you know, not only does Oppen not combine his politics with his poetry and, you know, maybe it's a different kind of formulation, but instead he thinks it would be, you know, explicitly bad to do that. So can you explain a little bit more about like what's going on with Oppen and like the wedge between poetry and politics or, or maybe uh, the, the seeming wedge or something, if it's not exactly like that? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a bunch of, um, you know, it's an overdetermined kind of thing. Uh, but I think it's important to realize that, you know, in the 30s, there was socialist realism, and George Oppen was really not a fan of the kind of party prescribed, you know, aesthetic stuff. So his idea of political poetry, um, uh, which is kind of inaccurate, actually, but like super stilted, very formalist, um, serves explicit purpose, you know, of the party or of, you know, the masses. And basically, um, this is quote uh, that I think I quote in the, yeah, um, he's basically just like, I don't believe in, you know, like a man saying, well, I'm a poet and I'll make my contribution to the cause by writing poems about it, because you're actually not making a contribution to the cause in his argument. Um, you know, he said, if you decide to write poetry, then you write poetry, not something that you hope or deceive yourself into believing can save people who are suffering. Um, and so I think that that the, the context of the uselessness of political poetry in his mind uh, really informs uh, why he stops writing as opposed to someone like Cardinal, who is coming out of a completely different tradition. Um, uh, but I think he just felt really guilty. Um, he also like was pretty well off um, for you know the first part of his life. He gave a lot of it up, but I feel like that guilt of like having been raised like a petty bourgeois subject also haunted him. So he went down harder on it than uh, you know someone like Cardinal. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, as you were saying that, I guess uh, I found myself wanting to know a little bit more, too, about the sort of political poetic landscape that someone like Oppen would have been uh, thinking about. So you mentioned he's um, participating, in a, participating in a certain modernist tradition. He's also reacting against a particular conception of socialist realism. Uh, but it just seems to me like maybe it's just because I know to look for it now or something, but it seems like there's a renewed interest in uh, communist poetry, especially from the height of the movement in the 30s and 40s and that sort of thing. Um, do you have any sense of kind of what's in the air, I guess, for, you know, people who are politically on the left and also doing poetry at the same time, maybe in that kind of like sphere at the height of the labor movement in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I mean, so um, Carrie Nelson is a, a scholar who um, wrote this really good book called uh, A Repression and Recovery. Um, and it traces uh, basically that whole movement and the um, the, the coexistence uh, of like communist poetry or labor poetry and like you know labor songs, um, and the way that like uh, a lot of that uh, um, kind of more formalist stuff like the the wobblies like little red songbook uh, and things like that. Um, are, you know, in a continuum with, you know, a poet like Kenneth Fearing, who uh, is a very uh, 
you know, kind of famous proletarian poet, uh, sort of the, the, the kind of opposite tendency of Oppen. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that, that, you know, Oppen's whole school, um, the objective is not really a school, but it was a bunch of guys, um, plus, um, Ellerine Niedeker, um, they, they were kind of ostracized in a bunch of different ways. Um, they were ostracized by the, you know, publications, um, of the communist party for not, you know, adhering to, um, you know, party aesthetics, but also for their name, um, because, um, the communist party interpreted, you know, objectivist as, um, not being the, that kind of Randian thing that came later. Um, but, you know, as being, you know, objective um, and not taking a political side. So from the start, like as soon as they started calling themselves that, they were already sort of in the shit. Um, but if you go back and look at what the objectivists were trying to do, um, among whom are like Zukowski, um, Rikazi, and those people, um, like most of them w were also communists. Uh, they just sort of didn't, uh, believe in the aesthetic that was dominant at the time. Um, and I mean, if you go back and read stuff by Zukovsky, um, and you know, his like super long work, a, uh, I mean, there's like block quotes from capital and the Grundrisse, uh, uh, you know, in there. So they were really deeply engaging with this, but they were taking a more sort of like, you know, historicist rather than like a propagandist mode. And it didn't really work out for them as far as getting, you know, published by the people who had the same beliefs as them. Uh, that's really interesting. Huh. It's maybe a good distinction to set, set them up as historicists rather than propagandists. That's at least mm. helpful for me thinking about it. But uh, last week, no, man, it's been it's hard to tell time in, in terms of podcasts. Uh, <laughs> several you. weeks ago, we read this really goofy poet uh, named Joe Wallace, who is a, a Catholic, communist and Canadian poet who wow, the um, three genders yeah that's it <laughs> that's all of them uh yeah he uh i mean he, he was extremely goofy he had like lots of like very um i don't know for him poems aren't poems unless they rhyme this whole mm -hmm. kind of thing um kind of using sort of like that 19th century sort of like um you know like uh rhyming verse that's like his whole thing anyways he yeah. thought of uh you know he thought of like proletarian poetry as as being you know written for you know for workers and you know as a sort of pedagogical tool or propagandistic tool what would someone like Oppen think about that though like you know um he for Oppen, it's like you know not not gonna happen but what would he think about other folks doing that who are communist is there like a critique that he had of them or uh just wasn't really interested um, yeah, so he, he had an, a name, a kind of, you know, like very boring name for that kind of stuff. He would just call it communist verse with a capital C, capital V. Um, and he, he didn't like it. I mean, uh, he, he, he wanted to resist the kind of like formally conservative, uh, you know, rhyming verse that even, you know, like Langston Hughes or McKay, um, or Joseph Freeman or any of the big kind of, you know, proletarians, um, even if he liked some, I think he wrote a review of uh, one of Hughes's books that was like positive, but it still sort of uh, thinks of it as aesthetically like inferior or deficient in some way. Um, uh, and moreover, that it's actually not doing 
what it says it's doing. You know, if you think about like um, like a propaganda poem or one of the like uh, like if we must die by Claude McKay, um, which is a great poem, uh, and it 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 seems to be like this rallying call to like you know resist like you know racist capitalist imperialism. Um, and it seems to be based in a materialist politics, but, you know, Oppen would say, no, the, the, the aesthetic form of this, the fact that it relies on what he would consider like 19th century kind of outmoded stuff, uh, the fact that the form of it is not you know, evolving with the politics means that it is, you know, somehow, uh, you know, deficient in a way. It's really wild, um, really fascinating too. Uh, I guess I feel <laughs> maybe like my my brain is too um, too much of a novice to uh, sort of internalize this in a, <laughs> a sense that's more than like, huh, that's an interesting thing that a communist thought about some other communists. <laughs> but yeah, um, maybe uh, maybe I could uh, have you move into more familiar territory uh, for my own <laughs> selfish benefit um, by talking about uh, Ellen Bajou's thoughts on poetry and communism, because that comes up in your article on Oppen as well. Um, so for Bajou, poetry and communism have a, a, an essential link in some sense. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about Badu's thoughts on how these things go together, a contemporary communist thinking about this stuff and uh, how that sort of opens up the conversation with Oppen for you? Yeah, sure. I, I, I think about that, um, that part of Badu like twice a week because it has like driven itself so far into my mind in the most annoying way um, where I actually like a lot of what, you know, he, he has written. Um, but the argument to me feels so like like even though the word like just kind of like lazy mm -hmm. um in a way um and like so so you know his argument runs pretty much as follows that um you know the essential link between poetry and communism is forged through um uh the concern for what is common to all, which is language itself, because we all have language. Um, uh, and uh, what what bothers me, besides the fact that, of course, like we all have language to like some degree, uh, and it doesn't really like language doesn't have a politics that's inherent to it, um, is is the fact that it's so kind of tempting to just kind of agree with, because I remember the first time I read it, I was like, hell yeah, this is exactly true. This is the common is the true commons. It's like the fact that we all use words. And I thought about it more and I was like, this is like weirdly like an abstract formalist thing that has no real relationship to, you know, not only actually existing you know, communist states or anything, but even like the organizing principles that like we have used to like make the world a better place. Um, so it just seemed, uh, um, too like platonic in a way. Um, uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's sort of, I'm, I'm also coming off of, uh, my reading of Mark Stevens book uh, called Red Modernism, uh, which makes a similar case against, you know, Baju, uh, and he articulates it really well in that, um, uh, he actually calls it like an abstract formalism. Uh, and he says that basically, if you want to write about communism and poetry, but you don't talk about political economy, then you're not really making any argument at all. And I, 
I agree with that in a lot of ways, um, but it's definitely a better version to me than Baju's. But uh, yeah, dude, have you had you read the Poetry and Communism like article or? No, I haven't. It's a trip. It's you, worth reading. Yeah, that uh, it sounds like something worth reading. The I should say the only book about poetry, like theory book I've ever read is a uh, Julia Kristeva's book, um, Revolution in Poetic Language, which is like a wild book. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's wild. Yeah, I read it in college and I have no idea what's what's in it now. I couldn't even tell you what it was about, <laughs> like about. <laughs> uh, that's probably fine. I definitely do not need to tell anybody about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, are there like certain contemporary theorists, though, that you do find, I guess, useful to think about these uh, relationships um, between communism and uh, poetry in particular? Or do you feel like, um, yeah, what, what was going on back in the, the 30s was kind of a, an important thing to recover that's been lost? Or, you know, what's what's maybe like the landscape around this discourse? The Carrie Nelson book is, I think, really important uh, because of the how much poetry it actually like exhumes from the archives that have been forgotten. Um, and it it is sort of like, the text that I always kind of, you know, come back to, even though um, the actual work that, that I'm doing now is not in the 30s. Uh, but I feel like something that's been really useful to me to think about in terms of the 30s has been how that legacy has been either, you know, kind of preserved or like mutated in some way. Um, so a lot of what I've been reading has uh, been later. But as far as the 30s, one of the best books that I've read on it is um, it's called Left of Poetry uh, by Sarah Ellers. Um, and it, it just does a lot of cool uh, kind of updating of what Nelson is doing. Um, I'm, I'm holding it right now. I'm trying to look through it to find something that's useful to say. Um, uh, it's... It's again, it's like a historicist uh, uh, kind of text. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it wants to talk about um, the importance of the historical kind of uh, imaginative work um, that, you know, revolutionary poets have made and the way that they have, uh, you know, experimented with form um, in different ways. So it's sort of like the same problem you know that Oppen, you know versus say mckay or a proletariat poet um how how the importance of form has changed over the course of the 30s um uh but yeah so sarah eller's book is awesome uh trying to think i'm looking through like a fucking stack of shit that i'm using for my dissertation mm-hmm. right now um there's the communism and poetry uh anthology that just came out um I have only been able to read it in snippets because it's like $300 or some shit on the internet and I can't afford it, but I've read kind of, you know, bits and pieces of it. Um, and it's edited by, um, Ruth Jennison and somebody else who I forget. Um, but that collects essays, I think something by Joshua Clover's in there. Um, and it's just sort of one of the first like you know, anthologies that I've ever seen that really collects a, a broad kind of swath of, um, you know, like interpretations of the relationship between, you know, uh, either 1930s, you know, proletarian poetry or kind of more contemporary, uh, like anarchist kind of influenced poetry. 
Um, so yeah, that would be something I would totally recommend for, for you all to check out. That's cool. It's really helpful to have like directions to go on these things. Um, so that's good. Okay. Well, before we get back to Oppen, um, here's another poem from Dominic. Hadal zone in the age of deindustrialization. There's a smokestack at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. There are people there and goodbyes and tendon long whispers. Industrial glitter scales of disbelief and the Abad splitting open like a clam. We blame it on the free market. We blame it on the grammar of surfaces while on the ruined seafloor a fish rots from the head down dreaming of the wide disease at the precise moment when capital decides to drown us. My boss denies me a raise and the cops find him at the bottom of the trench, sucking on smokestacks and screeching out mating calls to an ancient sea devil. He looks like a blind machine sleepwalking off the edge of a motel balcony. If the motel balcony was a tectonic plate and drowned men could sleepwalk, O pond eater, O lemon whirler, O deep sea shift manager, read the moon back to me. Give what's left of its light a name. Terraform the waves with the density of wage theft. Well, um, maybe we can round out Oppen a little bit more and then turn to something else. Um, so, sure. yeah, uh, I think I think the way his life goes, at least based on my recollection of your article, is that uh, so he leaves the Communist Party. He decides uh-huh. to go fight Nazis. And then yep. uh, after the war, the FBI is kind of keeping too close an eye on him. And then he he goes to Mexico. Is that is that all right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So basically, as soon as he comes back uh, from the war, the feds are like, fuck you, dude. Like, you know, we have files on you. We know what you're up to. And, you know, this is obviously during the, like, um, the, the first kind of stirrings of McCarthyism and all that. Um, and so, you know, the, the HUWAC or the HUA, the whack, whoever the fuck you say it, <laughs> um, you know, went, you know, went after him. Um, and he and his family went to Mexico um, where they lived until the late fifties. Um, and the weird thing is during this time, he never fucking wrote anything. Uh, and if he did, he destroyed it. There's like no records from his time there at all. Um, he was there with his wife, Mary, and I believe his daughter. Um, and he was in a community of like, you know, writers, like in Mexico in, in the fifties, um, there were tons of, you know, us kind of expats either, um, who were, you know, being exiled there or someone like Audre Lorde, who, you know, kind of chose for personal and political reasons um, to go to Mexico City in like 53 or something. Um, and there was also this sort of like nation uh, kind of like psychedelic tourist uh, like industry that poets would just kind of go. Um, I think um, Charles Olson did this. Ginsburg, Ferlinghetti, uh, um, and a bunch of other people did this, and they would just like, you know, take peyote uh, and like try to reconstruct uh, post-war uh, like America by going into Mayan ruins and doing some kind of like uh, kind of cringy but also kind of interesting stuff on like indigenous cultures. Um, 
So th there was this huge community there, but but Oppen didn't talk to anybody really. There's like uh, um, in his wife's memoir, there's like two pages on their time in Mexico. Uh, so it really is like a gigantic like kind of chasm of you know artistic and like social silence um, until 1958 when he wrote Blood from the Stone. Um, so yeah, and then he just kept writing and never stopped again. So something changed in his brain, I guess. Yeah. Do you know what that was? Like, did did he stop being a communist and he started writing again? Or how did he negotiate that? He basically, this is a kind of a deflating uh, thing. There's not really a like a big theoretical insight. He was basically just like, I really love writing poetry. I'm getting older. Uh, and I am, you know, he preserves his beliefs. He was pretty much like, you know, a Marxist um, his whole life. Uh, but he just, he, I think, I think the war really fucked him up. Um, you know, he almost died, uh, in like a foxhole. Um, and so I feel like he felt like he had things to account for finally, um, that like poetry was, you know, kind of capable of dealing with. Uh, whereas I feel like for his first book, right when he stopped writing, um, he really, uh, um, like, you know, hadn't experienced the world yet in the way that he, he eventually did. Um, and I, you know, I think that, you know, he, he also, um, did make his poems, you know, into the world, you know? And so by doing that, I felt like he kind of, you know, opened something up, um, where he could be more comfortable with writing poetry, even through the Vietnam war or things like that. Um, uh, but there was no big, like, you know, sea change that he described besides the fact that he just, um, felt like his life, uh, um, you know, was entangled in things that were, you know, worth poeticizing. So, uh, all that's really fascinating about his life. Uh, you conclude the article with a really interesting sentence. Maybe we can sort of leave it, uh, here and talk, have you kind of open up this like meditative, uh, <laughs> poetic cone, if you will. Um, and then we'll, we'll turn to some of your work at Protean and, uh, poetry in general, but you write at the end of this article, the relationship between poetry and communism is a formula that must be to borrow Marx's language, demystified and set back on its feet. Rather than make the world into a poem, George Oppen's example demands the making of the poem into the world. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on that? And also in light of what you were just saying, you know, when he eventually is like, I think of just like writing poetry after all, um, kind of making the world back into a poem or something. Uh, how do these all go together? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, that that sentence I feel like relates more to the act of stopping your writing, um, you know, over than the kind of like acceptance that you can keep you know, on writing, even though there's like, you know, kind of urgent political problems. Um, but in in the most kind of you know reductive way that I can make it, I I like I mean that last sentence to 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 suggest like if you light a cop car on fire, that's a poem. If you get a union contract, that's a poem. Um, and there is this really important continuity that I feel like his lesson is not that we, we should stop writing 
and, you know, uh, just do organizing stuff, but that, you know, there, there is no break between these things. And so if we can, um, kind of merge them, uh, in, in our political consciousness, then like, we'll be able to, you know, kind of synthesize something that relieves that tension or that, um, like allows us to like sort of poeticize the world in a way that makes it better. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It definitely gives me a lot to think about. <laughs> uh, I'll have to keep on thinking about it. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, your own participation, I guess, in uh, the world of poetry as it is, and uh, at least insofar as you are, and uh, your own work. So um, we'll talk about your own poetry in a moment, but first, could we talk a little bit about uh, Proteon Magazine and what it is and uh, what your role is there and what sets it apart from other political or literary kinds of magazines? Cool, yeah, I'd love to. So so Proteon... Um is you know a leftist kind of magazine that does you know essays um uh and art and poetry um and uh oh and fiction too um yeah so so i i got on board with them uh a few months ago um i i had just gotten a couple poems published by them and then we became friends and then um uh they asked me to you know join the team uh but it's it's super. I mean, I think it's it's really an amazing project, um, and uh, it it actually lets me to kind of have some you know continuity with what we were just talking about. It lets me kind of uh, dial back and forth between the two impulses that I have between uh, we have to write you know straight up propaganda poetry um, and also um, we can kind of reconcile like aesthetic experimentation with um, you know a left political impulse. Um, so that's been probably the most fun is, you know, one, there's nothing, there's no better feeling on the fucking planet than like publishing other people's work and like seeing them respond, seeing other people respond, um, and like seeing how these kind of poetry communities form. Um, so that's been like super fun. Uh, but yeah, it's just kind of, you know, uh, like pleasurable to be able to indulge like all of my weird aesthetic fantasies by like publishing other people's stuff that I think does something that I couldn't do or something like that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, well, there's a new, um, a new issue coming out soon and I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a really neat thing. Um, yeah. Well, cool. Eli Valley did the fucking cover, man. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, really that's neat. right. I was like, how the fuck did you land that dude? That's crazy. It's a big get for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll say that the, the first issue was cool too, but, uh, Eli Valley is next level. Um, yeah, cool. Well, maybe we can kind of turn towards some of your own work, uh, as well. Um, so in past weeks, we've talked with some about, about some poets like historically and, um, some, uh, real life poets as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. They've all found some interesting ways to like merge together their poetic work and their politics. And I don't know, like, you know, there's, there's George, there's George Oppen for sure. And Ernesto Cardinal, but I guess, how do you work that out yourself? Is that, uh, a, is that a question you're really interested in dealing with, or is that kind of, um, you know, on the periphery? No, I mean, it's something that I think about. It's something that if I think about it while I'm writing poetry, I will not be able to write at all. Um, but it's something that will crop up when I'm like halfway through a draft, um, or when I'm, you know, trying to edit something. Um, and sometimes it's as like, 
dumb and simplistic as like, can I make this more communist? Uh, can I add some shit about like me beating the fuck out of my landlord? You know what I mean? Um, and you know, and sometimes it's at that kind of base level, but, um, but, uh, I feel like, you know, as a kind of like, you know, Marxist communist poet, like so much of, you know, Marx's early writing was about expanding the human sensory, uh, like apparatus, um, so there's this there's this deep kind of affinity to me between um, like really like you know intense kind of sensory poetry um, and its rhythms and um, the kind of you know music of um, you know language and things like that um, with the communist project that doesn't just have to be uh, um, you know, this is a poem about me like organizing, you know, a union or something, um, which is also amazing. Um, but, but yeah, I try to like uh, think about the kind of history of these, you know, communist poets and their problems when I'm writing. Um, uh, so a lot of stuff that I have written recently sort of uh, either borrows lines from or, you know, paraphrases or starts with a line from another poet. And then I might end up, you know, changing it or erasing it or something. But I'm trying to like merge that uh, with my own stuff. Um, just, uh, it, it, you know, it feels like an anchor in something that is like a legacy I want to participate in or something. Um, but yeah. Uh, you also have some theological themes that sort of shine through in uh, your poems as well. Um, how does that go together uh, with your political sensibilities? Are you talking about one one poem in particular? Uh, just sort of uh, based on, I guess, what I see you um, tweeting about or, or that sort of thing and uh, your interest in people like Cardinal and uh, what they're up to. Um, and certainly, like, maybe I'm projecting or something, but I feel... Uh, one of the poems that you had sent us, the title escapes me right now, but uh, it's about seeing um, a person on the street and kind of meditating on uh, their state and, and what what that says about society, etc. Uh, there's obviously a certain communist impulse there, um, but I just feel there's this kind of, uh, I don't know, like idea of, of looking for the least of these or the, the wretched of the earth in both the sort of biblical and political sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. Again, maybe I'm projecting, but uh, maybe those themes are aren't there. But if you could talk about that at all. No, no, you're, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I was, you know, raised like deeply Catholic. I wanted to be a priest when I was younger, um, was an altar boy, the whole deal. So there's a lot of just like, I feel like you can never actually stop being a Catholic. It's just like a framework that is like baked into your brain forever. Um, yeah. So like by reckoning with that, I tried to take what I think is like useful um, from, from that tradition. Uh, but yeah, that, that um, the one where I, I think I, it's about the, uh, the homeless dude, like beating up yeah, the yeah. cops or something. Um, yeah. I mean, like, like uh, it's, I guess it's theological insofar as like if God was made manifest, you know, in the world, uh, you know, there would be a pile of cops, you know, um, it's like, you know, sort of a kind of a simple version of like a divine justice in this way that I sort of find myself fantasizing about a lot, uh, mostly because the, the actual situation is so, so hopeless 
um, and, you know, godless. <laughs> um, mm. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the other poem that I have that seems like kind of theological um, is Honey Ash, um, which mm -hmm. uh, basically is like, what if God and I had queer sex with each other and he, you know, penetrated me with a poem. Um, and that was the first uh, poem that I wrote where I actually like had this sort of um, very like bodily experience writing it. Like most of my other stuff doesn't really deal with like my own body um, or it doesn't have lines like the curve of my ass. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, uh, that was one where I was like really trying to, uh, you know, parse, you know, my sexuality, the relationship to, uh, you know, a kind of theological impulse. Um, and there's not a lot of like politics, you know, in that one, at least not explicit ones. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I haven't really worked out a lot of the like theological stuff. Um, that I've been thinking about mostly because I put it out of my head for like 10 years. Uh, but I'm trying to come back to it and articulate it in a way that like makes sense. That's cool. Uh, I mean, especially that poem, uh, the Honey Nash poem, just reminded me of reading a number of uh, like really uh, spicy mystical literature <laughs> from like the 12th and 13th or 14th century. Yeah, totally. They were so queer. Um, and... <laughs> And yeah, and like just horny and queer and like that, that is not uh, like a mode that I'm like used to being in with my poetry, but I, I really want to like get into that more because it was really fun to write. And also like, you know, I think the mystics and all that are really cool. Yeah, that is very fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. I guess like a little bit of a turn uh, more toward the technical side of writing poetry. Um, so, so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a new year, 2020 Dean and I are really getting into poetry this year. And, um, Hell yeah. I think like the, I, so I have like, no, I have no background in poetry. I'm so dumb about it. Um, but like, I'm even just coming, coming to it and reading, you know, poetic works that are so wild because it's like, how do people even get to this place where they can connect these sentences together or like even, you know, parse them out with these like wild spacings and punctuation, just like, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the weird, like technician in me is just like, how does this work out in someone's brain? It's so cool. So I don't know, like, what do you think about poetry as a medium? Like, why is that an interesting way to convey, you know, meaning or a story or something for you? Um, you know, like what's different about it than writing like, a you know, a paper about poetry or like a novel or something. So I guess something about the medium itself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, um, uh, the, the first answer, um, which is kind of obvious is that just like line breaks are, I think really, really cool little like visual, like ticks in a, in a poem. Um, and the patterns that you can make, uh, by just like, you know, breaking lines and then all of a sudden your eye is drawn to the last line. Uh, and then the first line, you know, in the next line, um, and, uh, you know, in a very kind of like rudimentary way, um, that's just an interesting way to work with language where it kind of like approaches visual art in some way. Uh, and I have no talent with visual art endeavors. This is, this is as close as I get to that. Um, but, but 
Like another kind of, you know, simple thing about poetry is that usually it's short. Um, and so I really value the process of rereading. Um, and so it's hard to do that with like In Search of Lost Time. It's pretty easy to do that with, you know, uh, like a book of, you know, poems uh, where you can just engage with it over and over again um, and, you know, read it out loud or whatever. Um, and it, it just, it seems like a fundamentally like, like an ontologically different like experience, but, you know, with the visual aspect and the, um, uh, uh, the kind of like musical aspect of it and things like that, I think are, are, are really cool. Yeah. That's neat. Um, I mean, I guess the one way to figure out like why is poetry an interesting medium is to sort of keep on <laughs> working with it, um, seeing what it what it allows you to do. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your own creative process? Like, you know, how does uh, we asked this question to to Tegan Steelfisher last uh, episode too, and I was really interested. You know, how do how do you come up with a poem? How do how do you go from oh I I have this thought or I see this thing in the world and uh, you know a line comes to you and then you kind of decide that whatever like that's going to be the the seed of of this thing that you'll kind of water and take care of for a bit. Um, how does that work? Like, what's the creative process for you writing a poem? Sure. Yeah. So so a lot of it. Um uh at the the kind of earlier stuff um came from reading philosophy actually and just like finding cool sentences in, like wittgenstein or something like that uh and trying to like rearrange it in ways that uh that sounded uh like more interesting or more beautiful to me in some way um but uh like i think that there's a huge you know connection between like poetry and philosophy poetry and theory i think they do uh things that can kind of get around the, uh, the kind of logic goes centrism of, of like, you know, standard argumentation or, uh, like politics and things like that. So, um, like I try to draw from that stuff as much as possible. Um, but at the same time, I also usually end up, uh, writing like a line or two, uh, into my phone, on the notes app while I'm like taking a shit in the morning or something like that. Um, so there's this like highfalutin, like I want to like rewrite, uh, you know, Hegel or something. And then there's like, I am, you know, suffering in the morning and taking a dump. And I just had this like burst of, you know, uh, of an idea that's like three words long, but I'm going to make something out of it. Um, and often enough, I just gather like these kind of fragments, uh, you know, over the course of like a month or so, if I don't really have time to sit down and write um, and just sort of put them in a Word doc or email them to myself and then just rearrange them uh, and try to see if it becomes, uh, you know, something that feels coherent. That makes a lot of sense. That's that's cool. That's yeah. the, uh, I, like, I appreciate the, the, the high, the high minded answer and then the real answer. That's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's really fun to hear a little bit about uh, about the process. Um, could you talk maybe also about the editing side? So, all right, someone has you know gone from uh, typing notes in their phone while taking a dump to uh, presenting you with a, a real life poem that they're ready to sort of hand off. 
uh, how does one even edit a poem, right? <laughs> like, uh, I read as a journalist, so I get all kinds of edits that way. And I read as a philosopher, and those are edits. But I guess it's hard for me to imagine the kind of artistic edits that you might have to consider as a, an editor of poetry. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a lot of it is just going off of, like, you know, feeling or intuition, which is not really that that interesting to talk about because there's no real way to talk about it. I mean, I try to, I've been trying to like give up this idea of like, you know, editing something to death um, recently because uh, sometimes you like fuck it up when you're editing uh, and you make it worse. And, and uh, that's kind of annoying. No, I mean, I think that editing is important. Um, but like, like as far as the like process goes, if if I am reading something over and over again that I'd written, uh, and something doesn't feel right, like you can read it out loud. Um, sometimes I do these sort of like randomization like experiments where I'll just like randomly cut and paste different you know lines in different order, uh, and see if that changes the music of it. Um, uh, Sometimes I'll like, you know, try to like diagram it in a weird way. Like if I'm like, if the problem is that there's like too, too many images like stacked and it feels rushed or it feels like the metaphor can't actually like blossom in, in, in a way, um, uh, um, you know, trying to pare down. I think that's, that's, that's another thing that's really important is just like, uh, like I used to write these like kind of sprawling longer poems, um, uh, that felt more like a kind of like, uh, like romantic capital R, like first thought, best thought type of thing. Um, and so much of what I've learned through my conversations with other poets actually is just like trying to break the poem down into the smallest possible unit, um, whether that's an image or, uh, like a certain rhythmic figure um, uh, and then trying to base it around that one thing. So it feels like it's, you know, coherent, sort of like the middle of a clock that the hands will wind around. Um, uh, so I try to always have something that anchors that. And that's kind of what I base the edits around if I had to come up with something to say about that. Yeah. No, it's cool. I dig it. That's helpful. Yeah. Um, well, uh, if someone wanted to find some of your work, where would they look? Uh, so my stuff uh, is in Protean. Um, uh, I have a poem forthcoming from Glass Poetry. Um, there's stuff in PaintBucket.page. There's stuff in Marl's Carks. Um, uh, oh, you know, I actually kind of want to say something about those presses for a sec. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, Possibly the best thing that has happened to me in the past like 10 years of my life has been meeting the people around um, the kind of anti-press scene of like Radical Paper Press, Marl's Karks, Best Buds Collective, um, uh, and Paint Bucket. And like the shit that they're doing is like literally incredible. And I wish that people like George Oppen were around to see uh, the kind of stuff that they're writing and the projects that they're doing uh, and the way that they're like absolutely bucking the like publishing industry. Um, 
uh, and the whole cult of awards and uh, prizes and contests and fancy journals that have blood money with them and, you know, uh, are in bed with the people who jack up insulin prices uh, and all that really kind of nasty shit that like liberals love to kind of gloss over when they're talking about poetry as some kind of, you know, abstract thing that's always on the side of justice. Like, no, like most poems are not on the side of justice. Most poems are uh, on the side of like for-profit, like healthcare companies. Um, so, so to if 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 you want to look at what is really going on that I think is important in poetry, I would look at those antipresses um, because to to kind of return to the beginning of our conversation, they are they are are they're navigating the apparent contradiction between political commitment and aesthetic experimentation in a way that I have not really seen in, you know, like American poetry, at least. Um, and I just think that shit is so important. And I'm, you know, kind of humbled to be a part of it in some small way. But, uh, uh, like, I think they're doing the most important work in poetry right now. That's great. Um, as you were speaking, I don't know why this never occurred to me as a, a real-life Marxist or whatever, but uh, bringing a kind of materialist analysis to the poetry industry is something that I hadn't really thought to do. Um, and... I felt like I could maybe fill in a few gaps of what you were uh, kind of getting at, but can you make some of those things that are implicit a little more explicit for me or, and for us? Like, uh, you know, when you say um, some of these journals are tied to let's whatever um, the healthcare industry or something, uh, what do you mean? What are you kind of referring to with that? Yeah. Well, uh, poetry foundation, the um, biggest purveyor of poetry uh, in the country, maybe the world Um uh, has received like millions and millions of dollars um, from the Eli Lilly company, um, which was implicated in uh, uh, like price fixing or something horrible. Um, and uh, the Ruth Lilly um, like fellowship that they give out is like use that money or something like that. Um, but either way, it's like pretty dirty. Um, and a lot of the poets who have received these awards um, or who work with the Poetry Foundation refuse to speak out or criticize them at all. Um, and they've engaged in some pretty nasty Twitter stuff, um, calling the people who are criticizing Poetry Foundation like jealous of their success um, and all just really like petty, dumb, childish stuff uh, when really what, what they and we were trying to do is to critique the institutions of power that operate even within a supposedly like neutral or politically left like artistic field. Um, there was another journal that uh, was funded by Koch brothers money um, and was like the, the, their daughter was the like uh, the editor and she like won a bunch of awards in a shady way. Um, there's just a bunch of really like fucked up shit. Also the uh, rattle, uh, poetry foundation, um, is run by like a landlord. Uh, yeah. So there's just a lot of stuff that's like politically noxious to me, um, about that. And I don't, I don't, you know, begrudge people who want to publish their stuff there. I mean, it's huge. Uh, but I do begrudge people who publish their stuff there and then call the critics of those awards, uh, you know, jealous or, you know, infantile or something like that. 
because it's in the same way that you would critique the university. We, you know, I, I, you know, I work for one, but I'm highly critical of where, you know, the, you know, the money comes from and who is like investing in fossil fuels and things like that. Uh, and I wouldn't expect, uh, one of my, you know, fellow graduate students to say that I'm being jealous, uh, or that I'm being petty by, you know, critiquing the thing that is, you know, keeping me alive right now. Uh, but you know, no institution should be, you know, safe from critique. This is like, it's like basic stuff that I thought we all agreed upon and to see, you know, you know, left leaning big name poetry people getting up in arms to defend, you know, the millionaires that pay their bills is like, just kind of shitty to me. Yeah. Well, that's good. And very good for us to know about, I think, especially as a novices to the whole sort of scene and world of it. Um, and also a good uh, reason why people should go check out uh, all the stuff that you're um, helping to get published at Protean and uh, to support that project. Um, so thanks for plugging that as well. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Hey, before you just turn this off, because I mean, who listens to the end, really? Not very many people. Um, I just want to give you a quick heads up. There's going to be a one more uh, cool poem from Dominic. So you're not going to want to turn this off. You're going to want to listen through to the very end to hear Dominic's uh, final poem. It's going to be great. Um, just thought I should give you a warning before you just threw your headphones across the room because you're so mad at your boss or whatever. <laughs> um, but before that, um, you know, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, we also got some cool stickers up on our Redbubble store, so check that out too. Um, yeah, if you can't support us financially, that's totally fine. We get it. Capitalism sucks. It's kind of the whole thing we're doing here. Uh, but you can give us a, a review on iTunes or, you know, retweet us or something. That's really helpful as well. Uh, cool. Well, um, instead of The Illogical Spoon and Amari Armstrong, um, this time, here's Dominic Knowles reading an original poem. Three Love Poems. One. On the eve of disgust, we took the bosses by the hair and dragged them straight into an induction furnace. We got high off the fumes of former grievance and passed out naked, listening to Sun Ra and his orchestra. Their heat kept us warm. Two. The police are still murdering black comrades in their cars, conjuring their suicides kind of evil that poems can't stop. We shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking this isn't so. We should hate the police before, after, below, beyond the poem. Three. What should interest us now, I think, is the process of liberation, not the imagined future in which liberation loses the referent, which is the condition for our imagining it. So before you get evicted from the orgy of totality, take a shit on your professor's car and call it the fruit of impatience with theory.